I invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 John. Read 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Though I won't be giving a proper exposition of those verses, we'll explain what we'll be doing in just a moment, but we'll start by reading 1 John verses 1 through 4. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, now with your word open before us, would you give us attentiveness to your word and hearts to receive it. Father, even as we look at this, I pray that you bring to mind anything that we need to be convicted of anything that we need to turn from. The Father, I pray that you use these moments to encourage us by your word and your sure promises and that as a result of this time, we would know better the great gift of eternal life that you have given to us. We believe in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amazingly enough, there are, including this Sunday, only six Sundays until 2024. It means six Sundays until a whole new year. And uh, I mean, where did 2023 go? We just started this one. But because of that, because we have kind of this season of for the holidays and kind of busyness, uh, I'd like to just do a, a short series on the book of 1 John with you. We've been going through the book of Exodus for uh, a long time. And we'll just take a break from that for a little while and, and be encouraged by this wonderful book of First John. First uh, John is, in, um, in my own experience, a book that holds a special place for me. Uh, it was one of the first books that I had opportunity to teach through. Uh, Priscilla and I, when um, right after we were married, we started a college-age Bible study and taught through the book of First John. I taught it to a it's a group of uh, you know, college-age students, some of college students, some just kind of finding their way in life. And um, it was almost as if every every sentence from the book of First John held some sort of uh, new glory for me. Uh, it was just eye-opening. I couldn't get enough of it. It was, to me, after I'd studied First John, um, any question in my life could be answered by that book. Uh, it was so uh, kind of life-changing to me, and I think the main thing that it did for me was it gave me a, a kind of confidence that I could know that I had eternal life. Not based really on any kind of merits in me, but on an understanding of what the gift of eternal life is in me. 
And that's really the essence of the book. It is a book that is used by the Lord and written with the express purpose that you would know and have confidence in the gift that has been given to you. And as a result of that, it can be used to propel you to greater love, faithfulness to your Savior and lead you to walk in the light and ultimately to walk in love. So, Lord willing, we'll spend about five or six Sundays in this book. I uh, don't intend to do a verse-by-verse exposition of it. That would take a greater amount of time, a uh, number of months. And the way that this book is, is written, it's really kind of a, it's an interesting book at many levels, but uh, this is often the book that is given to first-year Greek students. So if you don't know, the New Testament is written in Greek, and uh, for seminary students, as they're learning how to handle God's Word, they're taught the Greek language and instructed how to translate the New Testament. And inevitably, the first book that is given to them is the book of 1 John, because it is the simplest in language. It's very, very simple, and as you even read it in English, you just see there's this repetition of, of words and phrases throughout, and so it just kind of makes it a, a simple book in, in many ways. But don't let that deceive you. Even though it's simple in its language, the theology is profound. The theology is deep. It is a, it's a book that makes you pause and think about the nature of salvation, the nature of righteousness, the nature of Jesus Christ, the nature of God, as it says that God is light and God is love. Those are big statements. Easy to say, harder to understand. And so this book really calls us to great attention to its themes. The way that John writes is very different than, say, the Apostle Paul. Read Paul's letters, he writes with uh, pristine logic, lots of therefores, fors, becauses. And it's almost like these stair steps that he leads you up one at a time to reach the ultimate conclusion that he's drawing you to. It's not that John's not logical, he is. Just that he's a little bit more loose, fluid. Uh, He's a little bit more go-with-the-flow kind of guy. I think that with John, he doesn't have these hard stops or these stair steps. He's a little bit more like a slow roller coaster that you get on and it's going to take you for some twists and some turns, some ups and downs. Uh, and sometimes you're facing the opposite direction from where you were just a moment ago. But ultimately, you're always on the same track, and you end up in the same place in which you began. John's a bit like that. He has these themes that he runs through again and again, and they kind of cycle through, and they come up in different places. Not like a narrative that describes one event after another, but rather a theme based book that brings up the same kind of ideas again and again in new contexts. It's very easy to tell that there are these themes in the book. You simply take a moment, sit down and read it, which I encourage you to do in one sitting, uh, even do that in a repeated way for the next couple of weeks. You'll find that there are these repeated words, words like beginning and life and father, son and spirit, where there's contrasts like light and darkness, truth and lie, sin and righteousness, love and hate, further words that come up quite frequently like no, 
and commandments and abide and brother and children and antichrist and fellowship. So it's relatively easy to identify the themes. But more than just identifying the themes, we need to put them together and see what this book is about, what its purpose is. And the themes really coalesce in the express reason why the book is written. The book is written by the Apostle John. He's the same one who wrote the Gospel of John, next to Epistles, 2nd and 3rd John, and then the book of Revelation. He writes this as an old man, likely in his 80s or 90s, and he's been a long-time follower of Jesus Christ. He is that apostle who we find at the Last Supper laying his head on the breast of Jesus. He's the one who the Gospel of John describes as the one whom Jesus loved. He's the one who saw Jesus crucified. He's the one who ran to the tomb to see it empty. He's one who saw him appear following the resurrection. He's one who saw his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's one who was exiled after many years of faithful following the Lord Jesus Christ because he testified to the Gospel of Christ who was exiled by Patmos. Now, it's old. He's seen it all. He's probably the last remaining apostle, the only one left. He's likely writing to churches in and around Ephesus, and he shows the wisdom and care of a pastor who has seen it all. He speaks directly. He doesn't mince words, but at the same time, he has a tenderness and a tone of love towards those who he writes. You'll notice as you read it that he refers to his audience as beloved, as children, as little children. And yet he speaks so directly that he's not afraid to issue commands like this in chapter 3, verse 7. Let no one deceive you. Or in 3.19 he says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And he makes those statements all the more palatable because of his effusive love for the people to whom he writes. He talks to them directly in categories that are really undeniable. In chapter 4, verse 8, he says, for example, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Or in chapter 2, verse 22, he says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the apostle who writes to them directly, but with love. Several times in the book, in a very helpful way, he tells us why he can write to the people to whom he writes. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 12 to 14. It'll be helpful for you to turn to verses if I mention them. It's only a short book, you find them pretty quickly. John tells us here why he can write to the people that he's writing to. Chapter 2, verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. 
and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. The reasons that John can write the kind of letter he does is because his audience includes a group of people that have been forgiven, who knows the Father, and who have overcome the evil one. See, John's certain about the audience to whom he writes. He's not ambiguous about it. He's not wondering whether these people know and believe in Jesus or don't. This is the kind of letter that could be written by a pastor to a church he is confident is trusting Jesus Christ. This is not like, say, an editorial or a, a letter to the editor that you might publish in a, in a public newspaper where there's a whole spectrum of people who are going to read it and you don't know who's going to read it. You probably assume most of them are unbelievers, and so you write with that in mind. In this case, John knows that these are people who have heard the gospel and have believed it. Now factor in quite significantly into the goal for which he has in the book. In chapter 2, verse 21, he elaborates on why he can write this kind of a letter. He says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. The reason he can write to them this kind of letter is because those to whom he writes know the truth. That's why he writes to them. But what does he try to accomplish in his writing? What's his goal or his purpose? Several times he speaks about what he's seeking to accomplish in his writing. Chapter 1, verse 3, he says it explicitly. He says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. Here's the purpose. So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, with His Son, Jesus Christ. Content, what he's proclaiming, is meant to elicit fellowship between him and his audience, a kind of commonality and agreement of life that they can have together. He goes on in verse 4 and gives another purpose. He says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What a wonderful goal. He's looking for the completion of joy both at leave in himself and in his hearers, as they have a fellowship that would be agreed upon because of the content of the letter and the content of the proclamation. Their joy then would overflow because they have fellowship with God, they have fellowship with one another, they have certainty about the truth to give it to them. He gives another purpose in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you, here's the purpose, so that you may not sin. Man, what a wonderful goal this is. This isn't just for the original audience, this is for us as well who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is looking to steer people away from a life lived in sin. He wants them to live like righteousness. And we understand that the absence of sin will produce greater fellowship. The absence of sin will produce greater joy. And so these purposes really coalesce within each other. But I think the ultimate purpose, the one that sums it all up, is found in chapter 5, verse 13. John gives another purpose, and I think it's really the foundational one. Chapter 5, verse 13 says, I write these things to you 
who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the main. His goal with the writing of this, if his hearers listen to what's said here, understand it and apply it, then the result of it will be that they know that they have eternal life. You compare this with the purpose that's stated in the Gospel of John. At the end of the Gospel, John acknowledges why he wrote that Gospel, why he describes the light and miracles of Jesus. And he says in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The goal of the gospel was that it would be distributed to people who didn't believe in Jesus. They would read it, and as a result of reading, they would come to believe in Jesus and receive eternal life. It was evangelistic. The goal of the epistle of 1 John as a subtle difference. The people whom he is writing to already believe the gospel. He's not trying to convince them of the truth of the gospel. He's trying now to give them certainty that because they have believed the gospel, they have received eternal life. John's already convinced that his audience believes. And so he writes this letter so that those who believe might know that they have eternal life. This is a key doctrinal verse. It's chapter 5, verse 13. It speaks about the capacity for believers. Anyone in this room, right now, in the present moment, who has trusted in Jesus Christ, this verse speaks to the capacity of any believer to know that you have eternal life. This is possible because through the teaching of this letter, you can come to know what eternal life is and whether you have it or whether you don't. Kind of get caught up in that word, eternal life, that we commonly think eternal life is just living forever in heaven. And for many people, it begs the question, will I or won't I? Will I live in heaven or won't I live in heaven forever? And you wonder here and now, you think, well, I can't really know that until it happens. I'm not there yet, so I can't have certainty about having eternal life here and now because that's something for the future. I have to wait and find out to see if it's going to happen. Wait. You might think, well, you're really kind of a skeptical person. You might think, well, even in heaven, I can't be sure that I have eternal life because eternal life is infinite and I haven't gotten there yet, so I don't really know if it's going to work out all the way. Maybe there will be a day where it just stops. And so you're constantly skeptical. But what this book is teaching is that here and now, even before you enter into glory, you can have confidence and certain knowledge that right now, you possess eternal life. And the reason that is possible is because eternal life is not eternal life merely in duration, 
It is also a kind of life that you live right now. And if you live that life now, you know you have it. Eternal life is not just living forever, although that is a glorious component of it. It is something that breaks through into your life now. And it changes you. It changes your life. It changes your beliefs. It changes your world. And the presence of that life is demonstrable through what you believe, how you live, and how you love. And when those things are present in your life, you can know that you have eternal life as a gift given to you by the gracious God of heaven. And John is writing to encourage us how we can know that we possess the gift that God gives of eternal life. Some people have a severe struggle with the assurance of their salvation. It really plays. No. Have a dear friend who is a godly man, and I look up to him in many ways. And since he became a believer, he has had some major and severe struggles by wondering, am I saved? Am I going to heaven? Do I do I really know Jesus? And it produces some pretty dark times in life. And I know for some even here, this question of am I really saved? Do I have eternal life? It's a major question for you. You're maybe not even sure. Common question that's asked is if you're to die today, what's going to happen to you? Some of you might answer, I don't know. have to wait and see. And this is a struggle that plagues various people off and on throughout their life. Will you go to heaven? Will God accept me on that day? Is it going to be okay, or am I going to be condemned? And in many ways, that's a terrifying way to move. This purpose give believers confidence that they have eternal life here and now. Such a wonderful view. I think it's one of the reasons it's important that we take these weeks and study it. But I have to say this, and this is a key qualification. It has to be said that you are not saved by having assurance of salvation. You get that? That's not what saves you. Being sure you are going to heaven is not what gets you to heaven. Only Jesus gets you to heaven. There are many people in this world who are confident that they are going to heaven, and they're not. And so that is not what gets you there. The basis of our salvation is always and only the atoning sacrifice of Jesus and we receive the benefits of his death on the cross and his resurrection, we receive those by faith, trusting him. We're not saved by trusting that we are saved. We are saved by trusting Jesus. It's a subtle difference, 
but it's a key one. For those who struggle with their salvation, really offer to you these next couple of weeks this book. May be an encouragement to you. May give you certainty, confidence in what God has done in your life. For you who don't struggle with that, who do have certainty for the right reasons, I hope that this book will be used in your life to be a refresher and a reminder that the only claim that you have to heaven is the grace that God has poured out in the life of the Son. And the whole newness of life that you experience is there because of what God has done in you in the first place. And then be compelled to live in that new life even more. There are some here who may think, I don't struggle with that. Not me, we're good. We're fine. Well, this book acts a bit like a sword. Really, John writes to encourage the saints in their salvation, but he also writes to point out those who don't have it. He writes theologically to separate the sheep from the goats, not that John is the ultimate judge. That's Jesus. But he writes with apostolic authority to help those who have been under the influence of false teachers to be able to discern truth from error and salvation from non-salvation. He says in chapter 3, verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. He points out characteristics of those who are deceivers and of those who are deceived. Maybe the Lord would use this time in this very fellowship to point that out to some of you. Show you what true eternal life is and looks like here and now. So that's why John is writing this book. That's why it's given to the church for all time. What benefits we want to draw from it. He explains kind of the content of what he is writing in chapter 2, verse 26. Although we have these positive images of giving certainty to salvation, one of the ways that he's going to do this is by showing us the other side, that which is not salvation. So in 2.26, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. This expresses what he is writing about. For the original audience, John, the churches around Ephesus, there were these people who came into the church trying to influence the church with a, a new message or an additional message to what had already been proclaimed. The gospel message had already been there, had been given, the life of Christ, his atoning sacrifice, his victorious resurrection. But some people had tried to kind of insert themselves into the church to try to elevate the message of the gospel to a new level. They might say, well, well, that is good. That's kind of initial access to God. But if you want full access to God, you've got to take these steps. You've got to kind of climb these stairs. And there's further knowledge you need. Do things that you need to know in order to have real salvation. And that would be confusing. 
for a church that had been given the gospel, and now they have other people coming in and telling them, well, here's, here's the kind of more excellent way that goes beyond what you've heard. That's a good building block, but go here. He confuses them. They wonder, well, was the gospel enough? The gospel sufficient? So John is writing to set the record straight and to assure believers that they do indeed have the message of eternal life and they can know it in their own lives. The thing that John is telling them that from the very start is that the message that they receive, the gospel message, is enough. That's why he starts out the book the way he does, the passage I read at the beginning, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He goes back and says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, seen, looked upon, touched, concerning the word of life, the manifest life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing new needs to be added. So he says in chapter 2, verse 7, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And he goes on in chapter 3, verse 23 to explain what that commandment is. He says, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. I find this to be tremendously encouraging. Here we have a book in the Bible that tells us that we can know that we have eternal life. And the message that we have been given is complete, it's stable, and it's as solid as a rock. Almost everything else in our life just feels like a, a moving target. It's hard to pin down. We live in a life tumult. So little is firm. And it seems at times, so little is actually knowable. You watch the news on one channel, and you think you got it. And then you flip to another channel, and you don't got it. It's like, which one? What do I go with? How do I sift through all this data? And it's amazing because we live in this age of so much information, and yet the truth is so elusive. We have fact-checkers, and we read them and we think they need to check their facts. We have the topic of misinformation and deception. We live in this age where self is king and we determine our own personal truths. And yet we realize that doesn't hold the glass of water at all. Because that truth is just so out of line with reality. We need something in the midst of all of this chaos that we can build our life on. And I have, and I know many of you have as well, built our life on the solid rock of God's Word. We have the finished message of the gospel at our fingertips. I think one of the sad things is that however in the broad Christian world, it doesn't seem like it's enough. 
There's always a pursuit of something new, of a new fad, a new package, a new way to say things, a new way to do things, a new mode of ministry. New, new, new. I want something old. Something solid, something tried and true, something firm. And John's message to the church is the gospel message that was given to you is enough. That's it. That's what you need. And people who try to come and add to it or take away from it or repackage it or readjust it or morph it or evolve it are ruining it. And we have to remain vigilant about what happens to our message because this is the message that we believe in order to have eternal life. And as that eternal life comes into your life, then know that you have it. Be so disoriented. I listen to people on the TV or on the radio. I listen very little to the Christian radio. I just don't care for it. But in the snippets that I hear, Almost every program I hear on just kind of a popular radio station says something wrong. It's amazing. Like, really not biblical. And I only listen for five minutes. We have to be vigilant about the message that we have and constantly bring it back to the message we receive. John brings his readers back what they have already had proclaimed to them. He gives them, in this book, these tests. They're really tests for the saints to be able to determine whether someone's false or whether they're true. And it can be applied individually, and it can be also applied to messages that you hear. He gives three texts, and he comes at them and from different angles and kind of spirals around them here and there. But I think that these three texts can be summarized this way, and others have summarized this way. This is original to me. But there's the test of doctrine. And then there's the test of morals. And then there's the test of love. As these People have come into the church to whom John is writing, probably good communicators, probably very persuasive, probably likable. But you hear it, think something wrong. Well, these tests will help you know what's wrong. And at the same time, you're testing the message, you're also realizing the message I've heard is true from the Gospels, the real Gospel is true, it's come into my life, it's done its work in me, and I know that I have eternal life, so I don't need anything added on to it. So these tests really work in multiple ways. It shows what is true, and it also shows what is false. It'll be the attention for the next several weeks to unpack these tests, but I'll just give you a quick overview in these next few moments to wrap things up. First test is that doctrinal test. The doctrinal test. He exhorts his audience in chapter 4, verse 1, to be discerning. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. 
For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Calls the right to start be discerned. Test the spirits. The spirits are really exemplified in the presence of false prophets, false teachers. Did you notice it says that there are many? There are many. First John chapter 2, verse 18 says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. False teachers and false prophets are what they are because they twist the scriptures and change the truth. They try to persuade others that they're telling the truth, and there's many of them. John, once again, at the very beginning of his letter, affirms his eyewitness testimony to the truth. And the way that he brings it up is he starts with a very doctrinal statement. To help us discern false teachers and false prophets, he gives us this doctrinal test, and it's really focused and anchored on the incarnation of Christ. Once again, chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, touched with our hands concerning the word life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, testified to it, and claimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That is a statement about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, about the Son of God who existed eternally with the Father forever in glory, who then took on flesh and now was truly man, truly God. So this is part of the doctrinal text. And he begins this way because what is being denied by the false teachers focuses in on the person and work of Jesus. First John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. The doctrinal test focuses in on the person of Jesus. The false teachers were basically denying something essential about Jesus. Some of them believed that it would be inconceivable for the divine to actually take on human flesh because they think human flesh is so corrupted that the divine would never do that. And so they Propose some solutions to this. He just seemed like he did. You couldn't really touch him or feel him. He was just kind of an apparition. John says, well, as a matter of fact, he didn't touch him. He wasn't a ghost. And some said that, well, there was a man, Jesus, but the Spirit of Christ was just a spirit that kind of descended on him for some time after his baptism and before his death. And so the Spirit of Christ was there, but it wasn't really the physical person of Jesus. Well, that's a problem. Because if the Christ, God-man, did not die on that cross, do you know how many sins were atoned for? Precisely none. So John makes a big deal about this as he affirms in chapter 4, verse 9. He says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world 
so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved him, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We'll elaborate on this more in coming weeks, but just know that the start that John puts a big emphasis on the doctrine of the person of Christ. Who he is, and then also what he came to do. And you mess with that, though it's very dangerous territories. Whenever you evaluate the system of belief, you should look very closely at what they do with Jesus and his work on the cross. And you will find that in some way, every false system that kind of tries to latch on Christianity messes that up. They deny his humanity, they deny his deity, they deny his atonement, they deny his full atonement on the cross. It's the doctrinal test. This really leads into the second test, which is the moral test, because we know that Jesus, the God-man, was completely righteous, and he came into the world to deal with the sin of the world. And if you mess up Jesus, then you mess up the purpose for which he came. And at some point, you will have a misunderstanding of sin. This seems to be a problem that was accompanying the false teachers, because in 1 John 1, 5, John really kicks off the body of his letter by saying this, This is the message we have heard from him, and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. He establishes right at the start the absolute purity of God. Then he goes on and says, If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The false teachers seem to want to have it both ways. They want to be able to say that we have a relationship with God, and at the same time, love and live in the world with kind of adoration of In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John exhorts, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. False teachers most likely love the world. They love the ways of the world. They love the things of the world. They love the look of the world. And in order to say that they both loved God and loved the world, they would have to, in some sense, claim that they had no sin in themselves. So that's why John writes again in 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Or verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. This word is not in us. They downplay sin. It's the moral text. Downplay sin. Amazingly enough, there are still people today who deny that they have any sin, but I think that the more popular form of false teaching that John would try to eradicate is the kind of teaching that just minimizes sin by just saying, well, we just make mistakes. We don't really sin. Or rather than talking about sin, we talk about it this way. You're just not reaching your potential. 
They never talk about sin. You don't deal with sin. You can't understand salvation. If you don't understand that, you don't have Christ. Because he's the one who came to deal with our sin. Salvation and eternal life is not just that you are a lost puppy that needs some love. Salvation and eternal life is that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. So we have to apply the moral test. And then finally, there's the test of love. Test of love. 1 John 4, verse 9, love is defined for us. Since in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. If this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Then he says in verse 11, Thou working with that, this, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Because the false teachers have effectively denied the truth about Christ and the truth about sin, then they also deny the truth about love. Because they really don't know what love is. Because love, defined by the scriptures, is what God has done for us in His grace to deal with our sin. Taking practical, sacrificial steps to help those who are in trouble. So, we issue, are issued this test of love. If you have received this real love of God that is rescued from condemnation and hell, then you are born of God and you are going to live a life of love. So he says in chapter 3, verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. He goes on in verse 14 and says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Then verse 8, chapter 4, it says, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Or 4, verse 20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And then love that is to be the fruit of eternal life given to you, be a practical love. First John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and False teachers come in, they look persuasive, they look like they have together, they communicate well and all of that. You apply the doctrinal test, you notice that they fail in regard regarding Christ, regarding sin, regarding true salvation. Then also, look at the life. Do you know who false teachers ultimately care about? Themselves. So there's this test of love. But remember that these tests are not just given to call out 
false teachers. They're given to enlightened saints that when you believe in the true Jesus, the God man of the Gospels, and when you know he has come to be the propitiation for your sin, and when you know that you are with sin, but only his love given to Christ cleanses you of all sin. And when that love has so rooted itself in you that you now are able to love others in a way that was really foreign to you previously, you know that you are now born of God and that you have eternal life. So this wonderful book is given to help you discern false teaching and understand true eternal life. And I hope that as a result of our time, you will know that God has brought eternal life. Completely by his grace, you have confidence that you have the message of eternal life. It's done its work, and you don't need to add to it, you just need to live it. Father, we thank you for the book of 1 John. We would ask you that you pour out its riches on us as we study it next week. We pray even now, Lord, that you give us plenty to think about, take away. Help us, Lord, to be discerning. Help us also to know our own thoughts. And Father, I pray for those who struggle with assurance of their salvation, that you would use this book and these truths to convince them of the good work that you have begun in them, that you will bring to completion of the day of Christ. Pray, Father, for anyone who's deceived that you would bring truth to bear on their hearts as well. Help us, Father, to honor you, to live out the eternal life that you've given to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.